Heavenly Father, what a wonderful work you're doing here, Father. And we see it all around us. We see it in the the growth of our body. We see it in the provisions you've given us of the building and all the things that come with it, of the service of hearts who have come into this room and desired to minister to others by their service. But, Father, what we see and understand most is that your Spirit is alive and active in each of us, and it is you doing this work. You planned it. You've called us here. You've equipped us. You've given us the direction. You've brought the people to hear and to be part of what we do as we honor you in the, the work of this ministry. Father, you've done it all. It seems to us, Father, that you are the one and only one who deserves glory here tonight and praise and thanks. And while we congratulate ourselves from time to time, Father, we, we don't do that um, without, with, with the intention to overlook your uh, sole contribution and power and work here. We simply acknowledge that as you use us, Father, we are blessed and we feel joy and we're thankful. In 18 months, Father, you've done a miracle and we ask, Father, that you would have 18 years or 18 decades or whatever it is you see fit to work through this body to the glory of your name in this place and far away. Help us tonight, Father, in this one moment. Move us further down that path of glorifying you in this church. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last couple of weeks, as we've entered into chapter 13 of Matthew, the kingdom parables, we've run through about two-thirds of this chapter. And you guys have heard the old saying, drinking from a fire hose. Right? Well, I feel like that's been us over the last couple of weeks. In those two weeks, we've covered four of the seven kingdom parables that you find in this chapter. And it's been a lot of information, and I have intentionally moved through it with some pace. More scripture, perhaps, in in each of those weeks than you're accustomed to hearing from me. So if you're still struggling to make some sense of it, I'm just going to tell you that was by design. What I was trying to do is move us to a point where tonight we can stitch some things together. So you're not alone if you've been struggling with trying to follow it. Tonight, it's all going to make much more sense. But let me also say, if you're struggling, how do you think the disciples felt in the moment? Because you've had about two weeks to digest this stuff. They had about two hours max. So they were just as confused. And Jesus lays out in this chapter a bunch of difficult concepts, which by themselves would be challenging enough. But then adding to the difficulty level, he put it in coded language, in parables, And he did it in a relatively short period of time, so it feels a little bit like that first day in a college class. Just a bunch of stuff you're not familiar with coming at you too quickly. So drinking from a fire hose is the right uh, metaphor, I think. But remember, Jesus also gave explanations along the way. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to look at the things I've taught in review up until the point of where we pick up tonight in Matthew 13. And then from that review, we will go forward a little bit, and it's going to bring you to some things that, in my estimation, too few Christians hear. And in fact, many Christians are completely ignorant of, and it's such a shame because it's one of the key and primary principles of the New Testament. How can it be that there would be something primary that you haven't heard? Well, Wait and see, and I'll show you. Let's do that brief review that I talked about. And I want to do that by recapping the first four parables, where the sower and the seed, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed and the leaven and the dough. Now, if you haven't been here for prior weeks when we did this, this review will get you into the stream of what we're doing tonight. I have the verses up there for where we covered each of these. These four parables all teach something about the kingdom program. Now, remember, the kingdom program is my term for this period of history in which the kingdom offer was given to Israel and withdrawn because they rejected it. 
And we're yet still waiting for the kingdom literal to show up, the physical kingdom on earth. That's still in our future. That's not here yet. So what Jesus introduces in this chapter to the disciples is what will fill the gap between the proposal he made to Israel and his return with the literal physical kingdom. What will fill the gap? What fills the gap is the kingdom program. And these parables start to elaborate on what that program will look like. And uh, we want to go through each of these briefly. The first of those, the sower and the seed. I remember I, I covered this two weeks ago. And in the sower and the seed, there were four conditions, remember? And the parable describes how the kingdom program is going to be received uh, by the hearts of the world as we go out with it. And there were four possible responses that a human being can have to the gospel. Four possible ways somebody will respond when we tell them about Jesus. First, there will be those hearts that are closed to the message. The first condition is those that reject it right away. Other hearts that hear the message may receive it at first, but their interest will be short-lived. And when that commitment or that seeming commitment to follow Christ is tested in any way, they will fall away having no root. Some hearts will respond genuinely in faith, and they will have new spiritual life with a root. But as Jesus said in Luke, then the worries and the pleasures and the riches of life will intervene, and they will choke off the the fruit of that plant. The, The life of the plant doesn't get extinguished, but the fruit does. And then finally, there were those who will hear and believe, and they will set their hearts on producing a crop for Christ. Four conditions, remember that? Now, to arrive at his four conditions, Jesus crossed two variables in what we call a Latin square, a matrix. And I used that last week to show you how these things work together, that there is two variables at work in these four conditions. And these, this is the, the little chart I put together. I'll move around here so everybody can see it. But it crosses inward reality with outward appearance. That is, in the Latin square, conditions one and two are both inwardly dead. They're not believing. They're dead. While conditions three and four, those people are both spiritually alive, born again by faith. And that detail was pictured in the parable by whether or not the plant was still living at the end of the condition. When you reach the end of the description of each condition, what do you have? Death or life? Two had death, two had life. Okay? So conditions two and three have an appearance that does not match their inward reality. In the case of number two, it looks alive. That's the one that reacted initially with joy to the word. But in time, we find out they were never actually that way. It's just the appearance of life. And in the case of condition three, they are in fact born again, but they're producing no fruit. So none of us can tell they look like the world. They're a worldly, fleshly Christian. And then on the other end, one in four, you have outward appearance matched by inward reality. They are unbelievers and look like it in the case of one, and they are believers and look like it in the case of number four. It's a Latin square. That's literally every possible response to the gospel can be fit into one of those boxes to some degree. Now, according to... To Luke's gospel, this might be interesting, but the point of this, from Jesus' perspective, was only one of these conditions caught his attention. Only one of these four mattered to Jesus as it applied to the disciples. What did he want them to take away from this teaching? And you remember which condition Jesus cared about? Yeah, condition number three. That's the only one you can do something about. That's the only one that needs something done. 
And what he asked the Christian in that, in that teaching in Luke's version of this was not to be a condition three Christian, as I call them. Don't take the light that the Lord placed in your heart by faith and hide it under a blanket. Shine your light before men so that they may see your good works that you do before them and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that led us to the second parable, the wheat and the tares. And in the second parable, Jesus explains that spiritual war will rage between those who are sons of light, those who are the believers, and those who are not. In this parable, he explains that the kingdom program will be resisted by an enemy that wants to limit the church's reach. And so during this period of the kingdom, as I like to say, there are only two kinds of people in the world. No matter how many other ways you and I might label one another, no matter how many affiliations we come up with, no matter how many religions there are, from God's point of view, there are only two kinds of people on earth. And he describes them in this parable. On the one hand, you have the threes and the fours, believers, the wheat in this case of this parable, the wheat, And on the other hand, you have the unbelievers, the tares, and one belongs to Christ and one belongs to Satan. That is to say that we are all born into this world without faith. We are all born spiritually dead, the Bible says, but by faith in Christ, we can be born again. We can become a child of God by faith. We move out of darkness and into light, out of the dominion of the enemy and into the kingdom life with Christ. That's the way faith works. And he was saying, this is the, the state of the world as we know it in the kingdom program. But there's more to it than just that. One group will oppose the other. That is, unbelievers, though they don't know this, they're not consciously aware of it, they are pawns of the enemy. He can move their hearts. He can change their thinking and they, he can move them to places and to ways of acting in life that he needs them to do in ways that they don't understand or sense. And he does it with one goal in mind. He is opposing the work of the kingdom. And he opposes that work in one way more than any other. He he is not a fool. Don't ever think that the enemy is unsure of things that you are sure of, or that he does not know things that you know. He is not a fool, according to Scripture. And he knows, as well as you do, that you cannot lose your salvation. He knows as well as we do that once we are a part of the family of God, we are adopted a son or daughter of Christ, and he will never forsake us or leave us. He knows that. So knowing that, what's his goal? His goal is to get rid of the fruit. He can't change who you are, but he can change your effect. He can change how much you contribute to the kingdom program. His goal is to make you a condition three Christian. And the parable reflected that. Tares were sown in the field by the enemy. Why would he put tares in another man's wheat field? The only explanation is that he knows they will rise up with the wheat and choke off the fruit, which is what the first parable taught us. That's his strategy. And we talked last week about what it means that he's putting tares, what what it means that he's putting unbelievers in our field, in our life, in, in the way we live, influences of one kind or another that we allow to choke off our fruit production because we give in to temptation, because we don't listen to the Spirit. Thirdly, we have the mustard seed parable. In that third parable, he takes those same two conditions that we focus on now and he moves them down. And in this parable, he reassured us that Satan's scheme ultimately does not work. That is to say, no matter what the enemy may do to choke off the fruit production of any individual Christian, nonetheless, he cannot hold back the growth of the church overall. 
Remember in the parable, it was a parable of a small mustard seed, something insignificant, almost overlooked. But in time, it grew to be the largest plant in the garden, right? The idea is that the church will grow over time in such a way that its final state belies its insignificant beginning. And that will happen despite what the enemy does against any individual Christian. God is more powerful, and he has a plan that will be fulfilled. Ultimately, the kingdom will reach the point that it fills the whole earth, and that is not just in terms of the program, but ultimately when Christ returns and the kingdom is literal, then it will be a literal kingdom of the earth and all the earth under Christ's authority. So it will fill the earth in that sense. But do you remember the very end of that parable, that little detail that he throws in at the end? What will we find in the branches of this tree, he said? We're going to find birds, which was a symbol of the enemy again. We know they're the enemy because, from again, this is a continuous teaching in this chapter from Jesus. And he started the first parable with birds, and the bird, he said, was the enemy. There's no reason to change that as we move through these parables. It's a continuous flow of thought. So the point is, the enemy will find, as it were, a foothold in the church. That, in other words, there will be a time and a place in the church for the enemy to take his losses or take his victories, our losses. You know, that Christian who just doesn't stay with the program, who falls away. Yeah, they're believing, but they've wandered off into some bad things and it's trapped them and they never find their way back to godly living, serving Christ. You ever seen these people? You worry about them, you wonder about them, you care about them, you pray for them maybe, and some come back maybe, some don't. Some come back and leave five times. Ten times, right? These are the the losses we take along the way as the church goes. And we, we mourn for those. We don't want that for anybody in the faith. But what this parable is saying is, in the big scheme of things, this won't change the direction of the church as God sees it. It doesn't change the eternal outcomes in people's lives. It's simply an individual who lost their way. And finally, we have the leaven and the dough parable. And this brings us back to the main point. In that last parable... Our goal is being described there. Our goal is a Christian. And our goal is like leaven in dough. Because like yeast, leaven, hidden in dough, you can't see it. And believers can't be seen either, except by our effect. The only reason you know if there's any yeast in dough is because the dough rises. And we also are invisible in the world unless we reproduce like yeast. And if we reproduce, we can have a great effect. We can propel the church outward. We can move it in the world, so to speak. But in the way we do it, it's not by some great design. It's not that we sit down and and have a big map in front of us with the world on it and we start moving pieces like we're Patton in some giant war. No, the goal of the individual Christian is what? Reproduce seed, reproduce fruit, good works being fruit, as the Bible calls it. So leave the big things to Christ. We don't try to figure out other people's hearts. This is not a game of who's who. That's not what this was about. We aren't supposed to devise ways to defeat the enemy. We aren't supposed to isolate ourselves from the world so that we don't mix with all of those condition one and condition two misfits out there, forgetting we were once them. The Lord decides where the seed falls. It's His word that changes hearts. He knows who belongs to Him. He has a battle plan for the enemy. He assures us His church will prevail against the gates of hell. The only thing He asks us to do is produce spiritual fruit so that we might be part of this kingdom program. That's it. You know, a parable comes to mind, another one. Take the log out of your own eye. Right? This is about a self-inspection 
not the fruit inspection of everybody else. So let's summarize these four parables with four statements. This will be available to you later if you online if you don't get it all now. But this is a summary of each of these four before we go into what we're doing tonight. First of all, the sower and the seed. The kingdom program builds a spiritual community of new hearts by spreading the word of God. Christ's followers are serving the kingdom program by producing fruit. Our kingdom work will be opposed in the world by an enemy who seeks to choke off believers' fruit. We must endure this until the end when Jesus will separate the groups. Despite the enemy's efforts, the church will grow. It will reach the world. The enemy cannot stop God, but what the enemy can do is find nests within the church where he gains a foothold. You are hidden in this world, small and insignificant, but as you produce fruit, you help propel the church outward. Our responsibility to the kingdom program is to produce fruit. That's it. That's what you've learned, I hope, over the last two weeks. Spiritual fruit, friends or as we might say, good works in service to Christ, is the way the church is supposed to serve the kingdom program. And so to put it another way, our primary tool of evangelism is our obedience to the word of God. The best way you want to reach the lost is to pursue your own sanctification. Or as the old saying goes, preach the gospel wherever you go and when necessary, use words. You've probably heard that. So it's not just what we say concerning the gospel that moves the church forward. It's who we become in Christ. And, you know, if you think about this for just a moment, it makes perfect sense that this would be Jesus' call in our life. Because it happens this way in other parts of our life. If someone brings you a new message about anything, uh, something that they want you to consider, something they want you to agree with or, or sign up for, don't you evaluate their argument or their pitch on them a little bit? Don't you take a, a kind of size them up and... like? Oh, let me give you an example. So somebody comes to you and they say, I got this new fitness program or this new diet you should try. I mean, come on. Who doesn't kind of step back and go, well, let's look at your fitness. Let's how, how in shape are you, right? We don't say that, but isn't that part of what you're thinking, right? Or here's a better example. Do you take financial advice from someone who's in bankruptcy? <laughs> right? Have you ever wondered, financial advisors, why they have to work nine, five days a week? Why they're, you know, aren't you, why aren't you already rich? I mean, if this works. I mean, it's not necessarily always correct assessment. It's not always fair. But the point is, you think like that, don't you? The proof is in the pudding. Well, this is what Jesus said, essentially. It's the same principle when it comes to kingdom work. If you are a condition three Christian, what product are you selling to the rest of the world? What do you, what, what's the billboard of your life at that point? As far as the world can tell, you look just like them. Remember, outward appearance is like the world, even though inwardly you're alive. So as far as they can tell, what change are you advocating? You look just like them. What does it mean to be a Christian under those circumstances? I mean, it sounds like the, the offer under those circumstances would be something like, come to faith in Christ and stay exactly the same, only with fire insurance. You know, that's not a very compelling offer. I'm sorry. Because with that comes church and giving to the church and sacrificing for this. You know what? Not really worth it. I can stay who I am and not do all that stuff. That's why if your life doesn't look like your testimony, you don't have a testimony. If you want to participate in the kingdom program, friends, set your heart first on becoming Christ-like. 
And you do that by yielding to the Spirit as He teaches you and as He convicts you about sin. You just walk with Him and He'll change you. But that's the goal. This is not to say, of course, that you have to be perfect. And I want to put that caveat out there because it's not what the Bible's saying either. You're not sinless. You're not perfect. That's not the standard, right? That's, that, that's impossible. The issue that is raised in these parables is not perfection. It's production. And there's a difference there. Are you producing spiritual fruit at some level? Are you living out your faith in some way, in a genuine way? Are you shining your light before men so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven? That's the question. Are you learning? Are you living out the Word? Are you letting it change you from the inside out? Are you just telling it to everybody else? You know, if you say one thing and do another, it, it, it completely erases the power of that testimony. But by spiritual fruit in your life, what you become is a powerful witness who lives out what they believe. And the Lord has said in these parables, you can yield a crop a hundredfold in that way. Right? So the key is this. Do not allow the enemy to find that avenue that you give him to distract you from your mission. And he does it by tempting or frightening us into seeking for the world instead of seeking for the program. And I, look, I say this as a, as a dad and a husband and someone who has to earn a living and pay a mortgage and do all the same things you do. I'm not unique. We're all in the same boat. We all have to raise our kids. We all have to set aside time to binge watch on Netflix once in a while, right? That's a necessity now of life. But with all of those things we have to fit into our daily life now that we care about, Just remember, they are not the measure of your life. They are not the joy of your life. If you feel like they're giving you joy, you don't know what joy is. Right? They are not the purpose Christ had in saving you. Remember, a farmer, to use his own analogy, a farmer plants a crop so that it will produce a return. Right? What does a farmer do if he plants a crop and at the end of it, all he has is a bunch of tall, leafy plants with not a seed on one of them? What does he do with that field? He burns it. That would be a condition three Christian field, right? So our obligation to Christ is to make our lives a living sacrifice, to borrow from Romans 12.1, putting his priorities over ours so that we produce a crop. It's not that we have to become a monk and live on top of a mountain or go to some African country and give up everything we ever owned. That's an exaggerated caricature of what it looks like to produce fruit. Some people may do those things if they're called to. The rest of us can just go to our job or go to school or raise kids or do the things God's asked us to do and have an ear and an eye toward how am I supposed to do this to the glory of Christ. And when other things come into your path as the enemy will give them to you, you evaluate them on the basis of, will this propel me forward in the kingdom program or get in the way? It's a mindset. So let's be honest on this for a second. The temptations to put other priorities ahead of participating in the kingdom program are real. We all have them. And the Lord knows we would be tempted. And because He loves us, and because He wants to motivate us to do the right thing in this regard, He has provided a way for us to resist the enemy's temptations. And it is the most powerful, one of the most powerful teachings of the New Testament. And for some reason, I say some reason, the enemy's at work in this, I'm sure, for some reason it's one of the least known truths of the Bible for Christians today. I don't understand this. And it's what comes up in the next two parables. Verse 44. I told you we'd get there eventually. Here we are. Verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure 
hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, this parable and the one that's going to follow it tonight have long perplexed some in the body, certainly, because they involve what appear to be transactions. So, in other words, they speak of obtaining things of value through some kind of work, right? The detail here is you have the guy buying the land in order to obtain the treasure that is in it, right? And when you see that detail in the parable, even before you, you try to deconstruct it, it starts to suggest that if this is about the kingdom, then is it suggesting that the kingdom will come to us by human works or by some transaction between us and God, like we're buying our salvation or earning our salvation? You can sort of see that there if you're not careful, and it worries you, right? Well, of course, we know that is not what Jesus is saying because the Bible makes it abundantly clear, friends, that you do not gain your salvation in any way other than by faith, in Jesus Christ, not by works so that no one may boast. Knowing that, we, we, we take that thought and we rule it out because that's not what he's saying. We know that. So then we come back and we say, what detail of the kingdom then is Jesus trying to describe here? And as I take a look at the parable with you, we start here with a man who finds a treasure, Jesus says. And it's immediately apparent that this man was not looking for treasure, Right? Whatever reason he had for digging in the field that day, it was not because he thought there was treasure somewhere in the field. And we know this because Jesus says he found it, and that implies it was unexpected. And then it says, when he found it, he was so surprised, he was filled with joy over the discovery, right? This is clearly not something he expected. So what you have here is a parable picturing some kind of treasure that people didn't even know existed until they discover it. And then the parable goes on, and it takes a bit of an unexpected turn. You have the the guy, Jesus says, who has discovered this treasure, reburying it, putting it back under the ground, and then he goes away to earn enough money to buy the field. Why did he do that? Well, think about it. If he doesn't own the land, then he doesn't own the treasure in the land, right? And if he doesn't own it, that means he has to rebury it. We know he doesn't own it because he has to go away and get enough money to buy it, right? So it's not his land. That means he's probably a day laborer, right? Somebody put him in the land to to work it. He finds the treasure. He's like, wow, cover this up. And then he goes off to work to buy the land. Once he purchases the land, anything in the land is his. And obviously, if the owner knew that the treasure was there, he wouldn't sell the land, or at least not with the treasure in it. So he goes about his day. He later goes on, works, earns enough money. In fact, it says he gives away everything he owns to gain enough money to buy that field. Now, if he comes back and owns it and then digs it back up, it's rightfully his. He's, he's bought it fair and square. It's not a, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So this man, here's what we've just learned. This man has discovered something that now changes the entire trajectory of his life. One minute, he's just a day laborer, and he's earning a minuscule wage, going about his day. Now, he is a man with great riches, but the riches are not his to enjoy yet. He has to first earn them. By earn them, I mean he has to go find the money, work hard, sell everything he owns, come back, and then he'll have what he knows is waiting for him. Now, what aspect of the kingdom program is he describing, do you think? Jesus, that is. And as I said, there are some answers you can just rule right out. You don't even have to think about it. For example, we know this treasure cannot represent our salvation. 
And it cannot rep- represent heaven or the kingdom because you don't purchase or earn that. Right? But even more than that, we know this can't be the gospel message itself. It's not that the message is hidden in the world and we find joy when we discover the message of Jesus. How do I know that's not true? Because you're not supposed to bury that message. Nor do you earn it. Right? It, it's actually opposite of the kingdom program. You're supposed to share that message with everyone. All right? So it's not the message of the gospel. It's not the heaven itself or salvation itself. So the treasure, let's, let's list all of the qualities that we're looking for here. This treasure, whatever it is, it must be something that you can discover now, but you cannot possess now. It's hidden in that sense. It's something uh, that you discover in the field of the world, and when you discover it, it changes the entire course of your life. It's something you can only obtain through great sacrifice. In fact, you've got to be willing to trade your whole life for it. Notice the man in the parable had to sell everything. And finally, the value of this treasure is so great, nothing that you possess or could possess in this world could equal it. That's the symbology of the parable. So what feature of the kingdom matches this description? What kind of treasure awaits us in the future? One you can't possess now, one you can only learn about now, but if you earn it, one day it can be yours and it's worth sacrificing everything to obtain. Well, I want you to consider some things that you read elsewhere in the New Testament. In Luke twelve thirty three, Jesus says this, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Or Paul, speaking to the church in Colossians chapter 3, rather, verse 23, he says to the church, listen to him speaking to you right now, he says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What you're learning, friends, is that treasure is the Bible's term for the affections of your heart. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Treasure is where your affections are. And that's true whether those affections are here on earth or in heaven. And Jesus says, I knew you would be tempted to put the kingdom work on the back burner because the enemy has a lot of capability to tempt and to scare you and to distract you. And it's going to happen. And he's so powerful and he has so many schemes to, to tempt you that the odds are that if he just left it to ourselves, we would all find ourselves in a condition three circumstance sooner or later. Maybe not permanently, maybe not all the time, but we would find ourselves fighting that urge all the time. My job, my career, my sport, my hobby, my friends, my car, my this, or Christ. Can't come to that Bible study, Steve, because, you know, I've got these, this extra thing I'm doing in the office. Can't come to that, ch- that church event, Steve. I can't serve that. I can't do I can't, I can't. Why? Because my life says I can't. But our Heavenly Father loves us, and He wants to incentivize you to make those sacrifices. And how does He do it? He offers us a reward in heaven if we serve Him now. Greater treasure than anything you can obtain now If you worked every hour of every day for the rest of your life, you cannot beat what is behind door number two, so to speak. And let me be clear, because I don't want to mislead anyone. This reward I'm talking about is not your salvation. right? It is nothing to do with going to heaven. In fact, this reward is only available to you if you have already come to faith and are going to heaven. 
It is only for the believer that Jesus is speaking these things. The treasure that this man discovered in that field is a picture of your eternal rewards, of the treasure that awaits believers in heaven. It is hidden in the sense that you cannot see it right now. I cannot show it to you. It's awaiting you in the next life. It will be revealed after you die. For anyone who's nervous that I'm venturing into a prosperity gospel heresy, let me correct you on that right now. I am not saying you can have your best life now. I'm saying that your best life comes next. Right? As we like to say for a believer, this is your worst life now. All right. It is only after you have died and come before the Lord that this ever would would be shown to you. But here's what you can do now. You can discover it now. And by discover it, I mean you just did. Maybe some of you knew this, I'm sure, but maybe some of you didn't. Guess what you just did? Through the Word of God, you just uncovered a treasure in a field you had no idea was there. And like the man in the field, now the question is, what are you going to do with this treasure? Are you willing to set aside your pursuit of this world at some level, to some degree, as the Lord leads you, so that you may earn this treasure by doing good works to serve Him instead of doing things to your own satisfaction? Are you willing to make that trade-off? And now that you've learned about its existence, the choice is yours. Those works that you do in obedience to Christ now will form the basis for how Christ assigns rewards to you later. And let me give you the classic verse of Scripture that explains this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says to the church, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether, and he says, whether at home or absent, what he means is whether we are living here or whether we're in heaven after we die. Same standard. Here or in heaven, we have the same goal. And what is that goal, he says, at the end of verse 9? To be pleasing to Him. And then he goes on and explains why we ought to be concerned with whether or not we are pleasing Christ. Verse 10. Because, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one of us, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, what Paul just said is this. He said, our lives, whether here or in heaven, have one and only one goal, and that should be to please Christ. That's the goal. If anybody ever asks you, what's the goal of the Christian life? Now you know, to please Christ. And we should all live, Paul says, according to that goal, because we should all know that there is a day coming when we stand before Christ after our death for a judgment moment. Now, this is not a judgment to assess whether we go to heaven or not. I want to keep reiterating this. Our salvation is never in question. Look, if you didn't earn your salvation through good works, you cannot lose it through the lack thereof. Right? You cannot lose what you gained through faith by doing something or lack of doing something. What you do had no bearing on getting salvation. What you do has no bearing on keeping what you didn't gain by works. I mean, it's a nonsensical relationship. Okay. So what we're talking about here is a judgment that is not about whether or not you're coming into heaven or not. That's been decided on the cross. What this judgment is for is to determine how you served Jesus. And Paul says in that moment, Christ will evaluate our works so that he may recompense, or look, using an easier word, so that he may reward us for our deeds done, whether good or bad. 
Now, what is a good work under those circumstances? Well, a good work is any kingdom program service that we rendered to Christ as prompted by the Spirit. And that list is literally infinite. It's everything from the obvious, teaching a Bible study might be one I I would show you from my life, or saying prayer for someone when they've asked for it, or serving in a ministry in some other capacity, or just raising up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I say just, not because that's easy, but because that's easily overlooked. right? Or faithfully providing for your family as a husband or father or mother or wife. I mean, these are not complicated things. The point is, what did the Lord lead you to do that you had to do in sacrifice to serve Him and you were convicted and that was how your life was to go and it required sacrifice? You had to say no to things that would have drawn you off of that task because you knew you were there for a reason. Those are the good works that will reward that we will be rewarded for. And I'll tell you this based on Scripture. Whatever you had to sacrifice to obey God in doing those good things, let me assure you right now that what you gave up will be paid back so far beyond what you could have obtained, you will never miss what you gave up. You will not be sitting in heaven, I assure you, friends, saying, well, this is a bum deal. I should have just taken the Ferrari. I should have had that affair. You know? I should have run off after. I mean, you know, the things that we say to ourselves are going to make us happy now. Let me assure you, when the time comes, you will regret you made that choice. Or, on the other hand, you will be satisfied in Christ that you obeyed. He knows how to reward you far better than our earthly fathers did. Now, what is a bad work then? Well, obviously, a bad work is anything we did in the flesh. Something we did for what we wanted. For gaining something in this world. In Instead of serving God, where we put the two sort of in conflict with one another and we chose the wrong one. And those bad works don't send us to hell. (laughs) Let me keep saying this. By faith alone you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. That is how you are saved, not by anything you do. But if you do not serve Him, you do not receive a reward to some extent. Some amount of it is maybe missing. I don't know the formula. Don't ask me for the spreadsheet. I don't have any of that. It's just what Paul said. That Think of it this way. Remember when he says to the Pharisees who pray on the street corners so as to be noticed by men? He says, surely you have had your reward here. That's the way I think about it. When we serve ourselves instead of serving Christ, we get something and you've had your reward. Put that aside, serve Christ sacrificially, and then you'll get some reward that you couldn't even give yourself if you tried. So the parable of the hidden treasure teaches us that the Lord has provided an incentive to His children for us to make the sacrifices that He's asked us to make so that we serve the kingdom program. He's told us, you have an opportunity. Take advantage of it. And then in the final parable for today, and this one goes quite quickly because it's similar, He teaches us what a disciple does when they learn this truth. Look what they do in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, it's obviously similar. In fact, it's so similar, some people read it as just a duplication of the earlier parable. But that's because you're not noticing a detail that matters. Look at this one carefully. In this parable, you find one key difference. In the earlier one, the man in the field, he wasn't looking for anything. He was just doing his normal day-to-day, and then he discovers something that changes his life. In this parable, you have a merchant who's looking. He's seeking. 
He knows there's stuff out there. He's looking for fine pearls. He's already seeking treasure because his whole way of life is organized that way. He's a merchant. He's always on the lookout for something of value. So he's got his eye out. And Jesus says when he comes along and he finds that perfect pearl, he recognizes it. He's been trained to look for it. He knows the value of it. And then he gives everything he has for it. That parable is a compliment to the earlier one, obviously. But here's the difference. It's picturing the attitude and the lifestyle of a believer who has been trained to understand eternal rewards. That is to say, this is a believer who has set his or her mind on looking for those opportunities to serve. They are looking for that pearl of great price. They understand that there's only so much time, so much talent, so much treasure, so much energy in this life, and they aren't going to squander it. They're always looking for, where does God want me to serve? How am I to direct my life to His glory? How do I please Him? I don't want to waste a day. And we all do that to varying degrees, but this is our model. And when the opportunity comes and we see that pearl, we jump on it. In fact, we're ready to walk away from everything, if necessary, to please the Lord. You know, he may have called you to do a number of things in your life that you've followed him into, and it's been a, a, an adventure and an experience, and you've enjoyed it, and you've learned some things, and that's, that's what it means for you to walk with the Lord. But let me tell you, that never ends. And what he does is he keeps moving you up this, this ladder of experience and knowledge and gaining, and what he's preparing you for, I don't know, but it never ends. And this attitude is the person who's trying to climb, trying to work with the Lord, get to somewhere in their life, make a difference, not in the sense that they're going to save the world. They don't let Christ worry about that. They're just trying to produce fruit where God asks them to produce it. But I'll also tell you, if you're not oriented like that, if you're not thinking like that, I'm telling you right now, opportunity to serve Him is passing you by every day and you're not even noticing it. Like this guy, pearls are falling through his hands all the time. He's never paying any attention to it. The Lord has called all of us by his word to become part of this opportunity. And by faith, you've been entered into this game. You joined this chase because of faith. But the enemy is sitting right there next to you and he's saying, the last thing I want you to do is to produce any fruit because when you produce fruit, there's a hundred more of you I've got to deal with. That's his attitude. And so he will find where your weakness is. He knows what you enjoy. He knows what you're tempted by. He knows what gets you off track. And he brings it into your life. Like I said, it's not a coincidence, right? When I'm trying to reach someone with the gospel, and that's when their phone runs out of power. That's when something happens at work and they can't talk to me anymore. I mean, it's not a coincidence when life intervenes to prevent you from hearing the gospel or obeying it. But if you have this attitude, this lifestyle of learning and following Christ, you'll be ready to follow him wherever he sends you. So the question I have to leave you with is, what are you willing to do now that you have discovered this treasure? And don't ask me, because I don't know what that is. I mean, I don't know what the detail is, but I know he's asking us all. That's what we've learned in these first parables. Let's go to prayer, and we'll come back next week and finish with the final one. Heavenly Father, Father, in our hearts we know we are to obey, and in our hearts we want to obey. I ask, Father, that in each heart here you'd show us where and how to do that. Give us details, Father. Give us conviction. Give us a sign. Maybe it's that thing that's already in our life that we know we should do, that change, that new thing we need to start, or that old thing we need to stop. Maybe it's a new relationship. 
or an old relationship. Maybe it's disciplines of our faith that we've let slide. I don't know what it is, Father, for everyone you do. And I ask, Father, that as the Spirit speaks to us on what we've heard tonight, that we'll go home, we'll go with our spouse or our parents or our friends, or we'll go somewhere and have a conversation and ask someone to challenge us to do the right thing, because sometimes it's hard to do it on our own. And as we hear that challenge, Father, give us courage to take the steps you've asked us to take so that we may show up on that day to come, as we all will, and stand before you for our judgment and hear the words we long to hear. Well done good and faithful servant. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.